Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me, why then does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And Father, we lift before you your word this morning. <clears throat> and Lord, in faith, just ask as we've sang and prayed as an act of worship that this as well in this hour would be just as much worship unto you as we open your word and let it have authority over our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit who inspired it would both prepare us to have an ear to hear what the Spirit would say to this part of your church and that your Holy Spirit would be our interpreter and our teacher and that we wouldn't hear wiser, persuasive words of a man but experience that demonstration of your Spirit and power speaking to our hearts. Bless your word in this time as we study it, we ask. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever noticed before how it is extremely unhealthy and quite honestly a pretty dangerous thing when a person begins to sort of just do whatever they please? And perhaps you have seen someone before when they begin to behave in such a way as if they absolutely answer to no one. And you watch how they conduct themselves and their affairs and their decisions and it's pretty obvious that they don't care about the approval of anybody that they really don't feel any sense of needing to have the agreement or the support of anyone else. And they just sort of begin to think that they can behave and do exactly what they want, when they want, and how they want. And I tell you, when a person gets like that, it always causes problems, lots of problems. Now, that being said, in contrast, it is actually a healthy thing, not an unhealthy thing, it is a healthy thing, it is a proper thing and an appropriate thing. In fact, it's the most beneficial thing when God does whatever he wants and when God does whatever he pleases because the reality is because of who he is, he doesn't need to answer to anyone. 
He doesn't need the agreement or the approval of humanity. Uh, for God is perfect in all his ways. And God rules over all things as the creator and the sovereign king of the universe. And as a result, hear me, it is actually safe. I'll go further. It is safest. When God does whatever he pleases, how he wishes, what he wants, and when he wants. And he is the only one in existence who's entitled to act that way. Unfortunately, it seems we have it reversed here on planet Earth sometimes. And we as humanity almost act as if somehow we carry sovereignty when God exclusively is the one who has the right to sovereignty. The psalmist says in Psalm 115 verse 3, God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And I say, thank goodness. I'm glad for that. I'm glad that our God is in heaven and that he does whatever he pleases. I find tremendous confidence and comfort in that. And really, that's what this chapter, chapter 9 of Romans, is about foremost. It's about the sovereignty of God. Unfortunately, some people come to Romans chapter 9 and I think they get bogged down among each individual tree rather than seeing the forest of what the Spirit of God was trying to uh, sort of communicate and they begin to build whole doctrinal foundations off of a few phrases in this chapter rather than taking it in context of what it's speaking of and what it's referring to. This is a chapter that addresses the sovereignty of God. And again, the sovereignty of God just simply simply means that God has the power, God has the right, and God has the freedom to do whatever he wishes and to do whatever he wills to. God is in complete control. He does what he chooses, however he chooses. And whether we understand all of that logically or we can put the pieces together rationally, God knows what he's doing. And one of the best things we can do as humanity is to humbly accept by, here's the word, faith that God's sovereign and God's ways are sovereign which means I'm not always going to understand everything about God's ways or even I'll go so far as to say everything in God's word while I'm still in this finite little body and this finite mind uh, that God is an infinite God and some of his ways are beyond our understanding God's an awesome God a mysterious God but I find that you can find rest in sovereignty that God is sovereign and that supersedes all things and really is many times the answer to all things. And remember that truth as we go through this chapter that God is sovereign. Now Romans 9 through 11, we'll see, is a new section of the book that deals primarily with the plan and the purpose of God for the nation of Israel. That's the predominant theme being addressed here. The Jews, who are God's chosen people, are being addressed here in this chapter in many ways. And remember, when the gospel message of salvation by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ began to expand and to go forth in the early days of the church, it properly, as Paul said back in chapter 1, went to the Jew first. That was appropriate because the Jews were God's chosen people. Verses 1 through 5 there talk about all the privileges they had spiritually and Christ came from the Jewish people. So the gospel went to the Jew first, but ultimately it was intended as well to go to the Gentiles also. And when the gospel message went to the Jews first, some of the Jews responded but many of the Jews, as the Bible shows us, rejected the gospel. Now, when the gospel of salvation went to the Gentile people, and a Gentile is anyone outside of the nationality of being a Jew or an Israelite, the Gentiles, when the gospel went to the Gentiles, that invitation going to them was welcomed completely differently. The Gentiles embraced the gospel and it seems the gospel among the Gentile nations blossomed and flourished rather quickly. When you study the book of Acts in the early church, you can see the great acceptance and fruitfulness as this new institution of the church was now being established, made of both Jews and Gentiles. Soon the church was flooded with Gentile Christians, Gentiles being saved, Gentiles welcoming the message of grace and, and God's salvation being offered by faith alone. And the primary work of God, it seemed on earth, was shifting from God's work through the Jewish nation as in the latter years. And God was now primarily beginning to work through the church. We're going to see God didn't set aside Israel and he hasn't ended his plan for Israel. Replacement theology is heresy in my perspective. God has a plan for Israel. We'll see that in the chapters ahead. 
But God's primary work on the earth is now happening through the institution of his church. But the question arose in the mind of many, and Jews particularly, who felt very entitled, well, what about God's plan for Israel? As God's moving so powerfully among the Gentiles, does that mean God's plan for Israel has failed? Has God set aside Israel now because it seems he's working through the church and did his word fail? And even God's character was somewhat coming into question. It almost seemed that that God was acting in an unrighteous way from their finite human perspective. So Paul here addresses in our chapter how God has not forsaken Israel or his word or promises to them. And even Israel's rejection of Jesus and the Gentiles' great embracing of Jesus, all that was work together for the good of God's ultimate sovereign purposes and whether it was the Jews originally or the Gentiles later on historically it's all resolved by God's sovereignty and God's complete plan and control of electing and calling and saving whom he wills how he wills and when he wills among history if you're a, a sort of an outliner Romans chapter 9 will deal with Israel's past election Romans chapter 10 deals with Israel's present rejection, that is their rejection of Jesus Christ. And Romans 11 will then speak to us about Israel's future restoration and God's ultimate plan still through them as a nation. The purpose of Paul in this chapter in Romans 9 is to explain Israel's position in the plan of God, that they were an elect chosen nation. That God sovereignly picked by his grace, apart from human merit, they were given great privileges, but they began to feel spiritually entitled and ultimately failed miserably as they rejected the Messiah and God's plan for them to be a blessing for the world. And the chapter exalts the sovereign grace of God to point out to the Israelites, look, you're so upset that God is choosing to save Gentiles but God chose to save you by election too. You didn't earn it or merit it. Your father Abraham was a pagan idolater when God first began to work among you. And the Israelites, and this is important to our chapter's understanding, as the Israelites were seeing the Gentiles get saved, it was beginning to disturb them. And they were beginning to defensively and almost angrily think, well, what about, what about the Jews? We're God's chosen people. How, how could this possibly be happening? Is God done with Israel? Paul, are you trying to say as you're preaching to all the Gentiles that God doesn't have a purpose or plan for Israel? And they did not like the fact that the Gentiles are being saved so easily. They thought that was unfair. They thought that it was wrong that God could just choose to graciously save them by believing without observing the works of the law as we and our forefathers did. So in Romans 9, as they're questioning even God's righteousness, Paul addresses to them, listen, that's how God originally reached out to you. It was his sovereign choice to select you by the grace of God alone. And if he did that for you, why would you then want to cut off the opportunity for God and his sovereignty to extend the same thing to the Gentiles? If God extended that to you, he has the right to extend the same opportunity to the Gentiles. And to humbly accept God's sovereignty would be the answer to all those things ultimately, even though they may not be able to rationally figure them out in their minds. And again, Paul says some rather strong things in this chapter here, but he's trying to drive home the point of God's sovereignty to the Jews wrestling with this reality. Look at me in verse 1. Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. So again, he says, I'm speaking from the truth of my heart. I'm not lying. My conscience, he says, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So the spirit of truth that Jesus said he would give to us. Paul says, the very spirit of truth bears witness in my heart of this very thing. And what was it? Verse two, that I have great sorrow, he says, and continuous or continual grief, concern in my heart. For I could wish, Paul says, that I myself were accursed from Christ. Damned eternally, the idea is, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So Paul here in these first few verses identifies and expresses his great concern for the salvation of his Jewish brethren. Paul was a Jew. He was an Israelite. And here Paul's identifying his great burden for their conversion. In fact, he's going to say in chapter 10, verse 1, 
to the Jews, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. See, Paul was an Israelite, but by calling, God did what even Paul didn't expect. I mean, Paul knew the law of God. He was steeped in Judaism. He was a Pharisee. You think that is the perfect guy to go reach Jews. And what does God do by his sovereign grace? Paul says, no, I'm going to use him to reach Gentiles. And he became an apostle to the Gentiles. Again, why? Because God's sovereign. God doesn't really work the way we think. We logically, rationally think, okay, that's so clear. It's so evident who God should use for what ministries and, and who God should pick for this. But God says, look, I don't think the way that you think. My thoughts are above your thoughts. My ways are above your ways. So God calls Paul, this Pharisee of Pharisees, to go reach Gentile people in this unusual calling. But yet he's very fruitful because that was God's sovereign selection. And God sees the big picture and God knows how to, but as God did that, his Jewish countrymen and brethren looked at him and thought, man, you're a, you're a traitor, man. You were steeped in Judaism and now all you care about is reaching Gentiles. You don't even seem like you care about the salvation of your Jewish Israelite brothers. And Paul says, no, 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 you're missing the whole point. And he expresses here and in chapter 10, verse 1, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. He says, I grieve over the lost condition of the Israelites. In fact, he says, verse 3, I wish that I myself could be accursed from Christ if they could get saved, the idea of what Paul's trying to say there. Now understand, Paul theologically knew, certainly, that it was not actually possible for him to be eternally damned in order to be a substitution so that the Jewish people could be saved. Paul understood that theologically. He's using here, obviously, a, a figure of speech, a strong figure of speech, because he's trying to express how radically he would be willing to sacrifice or do anything if he could just to see them get saved. He's expressing the great burden in his heart for their salvation. Again, he knew Jesus already bore the curse of sin. There was no need for anyone else to do that. Paul understood it. But he's trying to give an extreme expression for the deep burden and concern for his souls. And man, I tell you, I, I look at this and, and I love people and I love some of you, but I'm, I don't know if I could go there. That's pretty intense. You want to talk about someone who clearly had an immense burden in his soul to want to see other people get saved, like Moses expressed in, in the book of Exodus, uh, that he would be blotted out. And, and again, this burden for the soul and the spiritual condition for other people, I mean, that is a true Holy Spirit burden. And as I read that this week, you know, I, I found myself again saying, Lord, I, man, by the Spirit of God, would you birth in me would you burthen us a greater eternal burden for the lost condition of the souls of other people that we would sorrow and have a sense of grief and concern in our heart for the unsaved, whether it's those in our sphere of influence or maybe a particular people group, that there would be that kind of a burden. This is such a wonderful example set there before us. Paul goes on to say of the Israelites now some of their privileges. He says, to whom pertain the adoption, not the idea of the spirit of adoption from chapter 8, but the idea is that God took them and made them uh, spiritual children in a sense as he elected and called them. The glory is a reference to the Shekinah glory, the presence of the Shekinah glory of God that was manifested among the Jews. The covenants, that would be the Abrahamic covenant, the, the Davidic covenant, these type of things. The giving of the law, they're the people whom God gave the law of God to, a, a privileged people to have the, the very ways of God explained to them like no other. They received the law. The service of God, which is a reference to the, the priesthood and the sacrificial system, the tabernacle and temple worship system. God gave them that whole experience. And the promises, all the promises God's given to Israel, most importantly the messianic promise that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come through their line. Verse 5, he says, of whom are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the greatest, he says, and from whom, that is the Israelites, according to the flesh, his humanity, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So Paul identifies in verses 4 and 5 there the incredible privileges, the spiritual privileges that God gave to the Israelites. 
that they had the presence of God in their midst. They received the law of God, understanding of His ways and His will. They had the priesthood, the sacrificial system. They had the covenants of Abraham and David, the promises of God, the prophets, all these privileges. And Paul says, if that were not enough, of your very human ancestry, the Israelites, he says the Messiah came through your line. He mentions there in verse 5, According to the flesh, Christ came, who is the eternally blessed God. So, incredible privilege. Now, don't overlook there, verse 5, take note. There's a clear declaration there regarding the deity of Jesus. That Jesus was not only the Son of God, He was God the Son. You see what the language clearly states there? Christ, who came according to the flesh from Israel, who is over all, who is he? The eternally blessed God. One of many, many references in the word of God pointing to the fact that Jesus was God. He was God manifested in human flesh that God came and dwelt among us in human form in the person of his son. Yet despite all that spiritual privilege, and you'd say, wow, what incredible preparation. You could not have been prepared more to ultimately receive God's salvation. Yet we know that Jesus among the Jews was greatly rejected, which is just a great reminder. No matter how much information exposure people can have to the things of God the word of God the ways of God humanity still has the free will to ultimately reject which is not a wise thing the very fact of God's extending his offer of his life to them it's a rather sobering thing listen to how John describes it in John 1 verse 10 and 11 regarding the Jews he says Jesus was in the world and the world had been made through him and the world did not know him he came to his own but his own did not receive him and so Paul here expressing his burden for the Israelites because they had rejected Jesus Christ, despite all that incredible spiritual privilege in God choosing and revealing himself to them. Verse 6, he knew what some would dispute. Well, wait a minute. Well, maybe the problem is, is God's plan failed. God's word and God's promise failed. It's God's fault. That's whose fault it usually is, right? He knew the Jews would say that. So he says, but it is not, verse 6, that the word of God has taken no effect. So he understood there would be some who'd argue that the reason for Israel's rejection was perhaps maybe that God's word had failed. God's plan, God's eternal program, that the word of God spoken had failed and that was the problem. The idea, again, if you could illustrate, is almost like as if God's plan eternally through the Jews to then reach all the world, the Gentiles, that it was almost as if, well, that was God's grand spiritual business plan, but yet like some business plans, it just never took root, it never got off the ground and the business, it just failed, it didn't make it. The business plan failed. God's eternal business plan failed. And this was the idea and the, the reasoning that was developing in some of the minds of people wanting to shift the blame to God. But Paul says, look, it's not that God's word failed. Are you kidding me? Paul says the word of God never fails. It always accomplishes the purpose and the plan. And it always is an effective, powerful thing. And we should never think that it's right to blame spiritual failure upon the word of God itself as somehow God wasn't able to accomplish something we have to remember that God's word has powerful effect and can yield incredible results when it's rightly responded to those whom it's spoken to and it's given to as they respond in faith to it God honors the right of people to choose in their response to him it wasn't God's word that had failed. It was the faith of humanity that did not respond to God's word. Listen to what Paul says to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. He says, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, he says, which effectively works in you who believe you read the book of Hebrews the beginning of chapter 4 he talks about others who received the gospel but it didn't have an effect in their life because they didn't mix faith with the word of God that they heard so Paul here declares look don't blame God don't blame God's word as having failed 
He says, let's put the blame clearly where it belongs in the response of humanity who had such opportunity and privilege afforded to them. Paul goes on, verse 6, to say, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Some of your translations say of the descendancy of Israel. The idea is they are not all Israel who are natural descendants of Israel, nor are they all children. The idea is spiritual children because they are of the seed, the physical seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, he quotes, the Bible promised, in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is those who are of the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. The idea is the spiritual seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul here begins to establish now with some examples how the very origin even of the nation of Israel itself was directly dependent upon them being chosen by God's spiritual and eternal plan by God's election by God's sovereign grace of them as a people it involved God selecting them and then their trust and obedience ultimately to what God was doing but beginning all the way back with Abraham the father of the Jewish nation you look at the, the life of Abraham who became the father of the nation of Israel and what was Abraham doing? He was an idol worshiper in a foreign land and by the grace of God, God revealed himself to him, appeared to Abraham, put his call upon his life, said, go to a land that I will show you and God said, I'll make of you a great nation and he gave him promises from the very beginning but again, it had nothing to do with Abraham. Abraham was an idol worshiper. It was simply the grace of God that elected and chose Abraham and began to offer the promises of God to him. What happened throughout history then, of course, we know, is Israel, the line of Abraham, the Jews, as we see specifically in the Gospels with Jesus, they developed a sense of spiritual entitlement. And they began to think because of their spiritual upbringing or their spiritual heritage that they were then entitled to all the things of God. Hey, we're Jews. We're descendants of Abraham. So that automatically means because of our spiritual heritage, we're right with God. We're automatically right with God. We were born Jews. Just like today, there are some people who, hey, we, 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 were, we, we were born in the church. We were raised in the church. We were born Baptists. We were born Catholics. Of course we're right with God. We were born that. We were born into this thing, man. And there's that sense of what? A sense of spiritual entitlement and resting upon just the fact of one's spiritual upbringing. When the Bible says, no, no, that has nothing to do with anything. That has nothing to do with anything. That's why he says here in verse 6 and 7, they're not all Israel who are of the descendancy of Israel. Again, remember the word Israel, that name given to Jacob. The word Israel literally means ruled by God. So what Paul is saying is, they are not all truly ruled by God, who were of the descendancy of Israel because many were rejecting God through their actions and behaviors. He says they're not all spiritual children like Abraham became by faith in God's promise simply because they're born of Abraham's physical line. He says, but in Isaac, he reminds them how, but in Isaac your seed shall be called, God said, that is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not, again, children of God just by the flesh, but the children of the promise are those who are counted among the spiritual line or seed of Abraham. For this was the word of promise. At this time I'll come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul reminds them how God's fulfillment of his promises to them again had direct connection to his sovereign election and decision to bring his promise through the chosen line and son of Isaac. Remember, Abraham had two sons. You remember the book of Genesis tells us how Abraham had two sons. One was a work of his own flesh as he tried to bring about the promise of God himself. That was Ishmael. And then Isaac was the child of promise in their old age where God in a sense miraculously opened the womb of, uh, of, of Sarah and gave Abraham the capacity for them to have fertility restored and a child to be born in their old age. And God said, but it will be through Isaac your seed shall be called. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Why? Because he's God. 
And he can do that. And he said, through Isaac, your seed shall be called. Through that line would be the messianic line. And God was sovereignly electing and choosing which child he would bring his promise and his plan through. But it was an act of God's grace and God's sovereignty determined by his will. In Galatians 3 and 4, Paul ultimately there alludes to how it was all a type and a picture of how we need to be born of the Spirit and can't through the works of the flesh acquire the promise of salvation. But it is by putting our faith in Christ that we become like Abraham, righteous by faith through Isaac as that chosen child being offered and how it ultimately would picture that. Paul then gives another example historically beginning in verse 10. He says, and not only this, but when Rebecca, that would be then Isaac's wife, she conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, he says, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to the old, said to them, to her, the older shall serve the younger. And then Paul quotes Malachi 1, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So Paul draws another historical lesson from the Jews' history, showing God's election very clearly again among them. He says in the next generation, Isaac, and his wife, Rebecca, they had two sons. If you remember, she had twins in her womb. And he says here, God wanting to demonstrate the purpose of his election, that it was not of human works, but of God who calls. He says, God himself, therefore, declared before the children were ever born, before they ever did anything in human behavior or works, good or evil, that the elder son would be subservient to the younger son which was countercultural. it didn't work in that way Esau the older son should have been entitled to the birthright should have been the patriarch in the family but God disregards culture and according to his sovereignty and election that the purpose of God and election might stand says no I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to choose the younger son rather than the older son to be the patriarch in the line of Israel. And so God chooses Jacob instead of choosing Esau as a way of demonstrating his election and his choice. This is what Paul's emphasizing where he says there, before the children were even born, they hadn't done anything good or evil yet that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. So God elected and chose for Jacob to be the patriarch and through whom the messianic line would come. Now, again, people look at that and wrestle. Well, wait a minute. So was it God's election and choosing Jacob that then caused Jacob to become who he became and Esau to become who he became? Was it God's election that determined their behavior and their actions afterwards? Or was it the foreknowledge of God that knew who they would become, that made God choose and elect Jacob over Esau because God has foreknowledge and God therefore chose according to his foreknowledge. Yes. I, I don't know. I don't know. The, the, the point that Bible was trying to make there is God, who we know does have foreknowledge, God chose. And he has the right to do that. He has the right to make that determination because he's God. He's entitled to that reality. Now, Paul, in verse 13 there, even goes so far as to quote, and I know some choke over this, where it says in Malachi 1, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, when you look at Malachi chapter 1, that statement there is speaking of these two sons, Jacob and Esau, in their national representation. We have to remember, those two sons, hundreds of years down the line, they became the father of two different nations of people. Jacob became the father of Israel, the chosen nation of Israel. Esau became the father of the Edomite people, the nation of Edom. And listen again as he quoting there in verse 12 what God spoke before they were born to Rebekah their mother. Listen to what God actually said to Rebekah. Again, Genesis 25, Rebekah has a pregnancy taking place and she's having a lot of problems with her pregnancy. So she says, God, what's going on? I'm having a lot of problems with this pregnancy. Well, listen to how God answered this pregnant woman's prayer. The Lord said to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. That's a problem in your pregnancy. 
Imagine that, ladies. God, well, this is a really hard pregnancy. Well, two nations are in your womb. Two nations are in your womb, God said. Two people shall be separated from your body. One shall be stronger than the other, and the older, there's our verse again, shall serve the younger. So again, in Malachi 1, where God speaks of Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, God says that contextually in Malachi chapter 1, relating to the national people that they became as Jacob and Esau became father of nations. And I think we need to be careful there. Again, even when we read the words love and hate, at times those words are used in the Bible to indicate approval or disapproval. Again, remember Jesus in John 14 said, if anyone comes to me and he said, does not hate his father or mother, wife or children, brothers or sisters, yes, his own life, he can't be my disciple. Now, wait a minute there. Is Jesus teaching in contradiction to the rest of Scripture? Then instead of husbands loving their wives and wives loving their husbands and parents loving their children, that no, Jesus says, no, I'm changing the rules. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you have to hate all your family members. Of course, that's, he didn't mean hate in the sense of how we in our minds interpret hate. The idea there was if you're not willing in your degree of love and acceptance and devotion to me to be willing to even disapprove the acceptance and approval of your family members, then Jesus says, then, then you're going to have a hard time being my disciple because sometimes it comes to that. It would come to where your love for Jesus would have to seem almost like you hate your closest relatives because you are more concerned about the approval of Christ than you are the approval of your loved ones. So again, we have to understand here when we read this, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Well, does God hate people? Of course, the context of Scripture as a whole doesn't teach that God hates people. God loves people. In a sense, Jacob I have loved, I've approved who he has become as he became the chosen nation of Israel and the Edomites became a proud, wicked, rebellious people who ultimately merited God's disapproval and God's, in a sense, rejection of them, of who they became. So again, I think we need to be careful that we don't build whole doctrines over one phrase in Scripture, but realize that Paul is trying to emphasize this, this theme, this truth of the sovereignty of God. But he knew that, again, we wrestle. Verse 14, look what Paul says. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Wait a minute. Maybe God's not righteous. I don't like the idea that he says he, well, that's not fair. He loves Jacob and he, and he hates you. That, God must be unrighteous. Listen, truth be told, if God was righteous, it wouldn't shock me that God hated Esau. It would shock me that God loved Jacob. To me, that's unrighteous. If you look at Jacob's life, Jacob doesn't merit the love of God. He was a crook and a conniver and a liar and a cheater. So again, Paul says, should we say that God is unrighteous? He says, certainly not. He goes on with another example, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, Paul says, it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but again, of God who shows mercy. So he speaks here of a time when God could have severely judged and wiped out, Exodus 32 and 33, the entire nation of Israel. Remember the golden calf incident? This is where our scripture reference comes from here. When God could have wiped out the whole nation and judged them and he was ready to and Moses began to plead in prayer and what did God do? God retreated into his mercy and his compassion and chose to say, you know what, okay, I, I will be merciful, I'll preserve. And God didn't bring the full brunt of the severity of his judgment. Now, what Paul is trying to say here is, look, at the end of the day, it's all about the fact that God is simply merciful. Nobody deserved the mercy of God in that situation. And even Moses, who God was being merciful to, he was a flawed man like everybody else. The fact that God was being merciful to Moses wasn't a demonstration of Moses' goodness or worthiness. It was the simple fact that God is a merciful God. And so if he wants to be merciful to someone, and what does mercy mean? Mercy means not getting what you do deserve. What do we all deserve? We know what that is. And so God says, look, I have the right to be merciful to whomever I want to be merciful to. He says, it's not of him who runs or of him who wills and their self-resolve, but the emphasis there, but it's of God. It's all of God. 
It's about the fact that God is merciful and delights to show his mercy to anyone who he chooses, and he has that right. He's entitled to that because he's God. He's the judge of the souls of all of humanity. He goes on, verse 17, to say, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, Paul says, and whom he wills, he hardens. So he uses another example of the sovereignty of God, the experience of Pharaoh. Again, from the book of Exodus, when the plagues came as Pharaoh was holding the people in bondage and God was trying to reveal himself to Pharaoh. And he kept revealing himself, you know, that Pharaoh may know that I'm God. God was reaching out to Pharaoh. And as the plagues would come, Pharaoh, it says, as Moses would plead for their release that God wanted to deliver them, Pharaoh would harden his heart and harden his heart. And we read up to some 10 occasions that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And again, take notice, verse 17, God says, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. It does not say for this purpose, I created you. Human conclusion again. Oh, see that? God predetermined that Pharaoh would be created for destruction. It says, I've raised you up into a place of prominence and power, into the position that he was in so that he fit into the sovereign plan of God for God to demonstrate his power and glory as sovereign over all things. Again, we want to build whole doctrines off of one word, read the word. It doesn't say I created you for that purpose. And why did God ultimately harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, when you read the account of Exodus... It's God, in essence, just ultimately giving to Pharaoh what Pharaoh determined he wanted time after time after time again. Some ten times Pharaoh, it says, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. And then ultimately we read, the Lord hardened his heart. And the Hebrew terms there, literally, when it says the Lord hardened his heart, if you look closely, the Hebrew literally says, God stiffened or made firm the heart of Pharaoh. In other words, what happened is Pharaoh rejected God, rejected God, rejected God, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, and ultimately it came to a place where God in his sovereignty said, I will give you what you want. And God said there, I I will solidify your rejection. You've rejected me, you've rejected me, you've rejected me, and therefore God says, I will now harden you in that position of rejection. Now, Without delving anywhere beyond where what God only knows, that is a passage of scripture that indicates me that it is indeed a very, very, very dangerous thing to refuse the authority of God, to reject the voice of God, to refuse his sovereignty. And God used Pharaoh as an example of his sovereignty to show the danger of resisting the voice of God of resisting the will of God, the the reaching out of God and to reject his authority, that eventually Pharaoh crossed the line where ultimately he was given over to his rejection. Where's that line? I don't know, I'm not God. But I would not recommend continuing to harden your heart and harden your heart because God has the prerogative to say, you know what? You just crossed the line. And so I'm going to give you what you want now. I'm going to, solidify or harden your heart in that condition. Again, God, again, in his sovereignty, did that with Pharaoh. That's why he says, God can have mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens, he can bring them to that place as that line somewhere is crossed between creator and creation. Verse 19, he understands again the response, you will say to me, why then does he still find fault? In other words, wait a minute, that's not fair. How can God blame us? For who has resisted his will? God's to blame for all this, isn't he? Isn't it interesting how we always want to escape responsibility as human beings? Look what Paul says, verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? I mean, that's just so direct. Who are you to reply against God? That's like a three-year-old trying to argue and dispute with their parents. You, you see this in stores, you're in a grocery store, and I find it almost humorous sometimes. You know, Two and three-year-old kids talking to their parents like they're the one that are in charge. What's more shocking is the parents respond to it. And here we are. You know, we're, we're, oh God, I don't like what you're doing. I, that's not, I don't want it that way. And, and Paul says, who are you 
to reply, to argue against God. You're always going to lose that argument. You're never going to win an argument against God. Well, the thing formed, Paul says, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter, he pictures God like a potter, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Again, the, the potter can take the same lump of clay and say, you know, I'm going to make a beautiful vase for flowers with this, a valuable, and then I'm going to take this other portion of clay and um, I'll make a, I'll make a trash, ba- trash basket out of that. The potter determines that. And the clay has no right to say, I don't like what you made of me. I, I, I'm not happy about... He says, look, doesn't he have that power to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor? Does, does, the, does the thing formed ever have the right to say, why have you made me like this? Hey, remember that when at times you criticize and complain who you are or what's going on in your life or the way that you... And, why am I like this? Because God's sovereign. Just trust him. You are the way you are because God loves you and you're precious in his sight and you're fearfully and wonderfully made and God made you who you are with the gifts, talents, personalities and lack thereof for his purpose, for his plan because he's God and he knows what's best. Now Paul then goes on verse 22 to say what if God wanting to show his wrath and make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, which he had, notice the language changes, prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, Paul says, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So here, notice there what Paul says, the first two words, verse 22, what if? In other words, he's using a a, a, a hypothetical statement. What if? He said, what if this is what God wanted? doesn't say that God did this. He says, what if? What if God, who's in sovereign control over everything, wanted to work in this way? What if God wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels prepared for wrath, for destruction, and that he might make known then the riches of his glory, on the other hand, on the vessels of mercy, that he prepared beforehand for glory. He says, look, if, if God wanted to do this, God could do this. He's not saying God necessarily did. But again, here's another place where people who you know want to take a theology and find proof text for it take, and they build a whole mountain of doctrine on a few statements. And let me just draw to your attention, not only that Paul's being hypothetical in what he's saying here, but notice also he calls the vessels of wrath that God had endured with much long suffering, and he says that prepared for destruction. The term there literally is that fitted or adjusted themselves for destruction. How do people become prepared for destruction? God does not create people to damn them to hell and destroy them. That does not line up with the whole of Scripture. You cannot take one verse and use it to prove a doctrine that does not exist in the rest of Scripture. The Bible as a whole teaches people prepare themselves for destruction by their rejection of Jesus Christ who is freely offered for salvation to everyone who believes. Now take notice that even the language changes in verse 23 of the vessels of mercy, and look what the language says, and it is completely different, which God had prepared beforehand. Now, when he talks about the vessels of mercy for God's glory, he says these God did prepare beforehand, because that's election. That's called predestination. People prepare themselves for destruction, the Bible teaches, but God by election prepares and calls people for glory because God is sovereign and that is what the whole of Scripture ultimately teaches. And Paul relates this. Notice he says, this is the reality, he's coming to his point here, that God therefore sovereignly called the Jews, but he also called the Gentiles. Look at me these last few quotations in verses Paul makes and we're going to wrap up our time with this. He says, also he says in Hosea, Quotes from chapter 2 and 1. And he says this regarding the Gentile people. I will call them who were not my people and her beloved who was not my beloved and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, that they shall be called the sons of the living God. So Paul quotes that 
And there he's referencing that text to use it to indicate that God did have a plan for the Gentiles. That the people who weren't the chosen people, God sovereignly chose that they would become, as they became a part of the church, we'll see more of in the next chapters, the people of God because he allowed them that opportunity. He then says regarding Israel, the Jews, verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel was as the sand of the sea, they were a great multitude, but notice only a remnant, a small portion were saved initially. That God saw in advance that only a small part of Israel would actually respond to him for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah has said before, here's God's mercy, chapter 1 of Isaiah, unless the Lord of Sabbath left us a seed, a remnant, he says we would have all become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Again, the idea there is the great failure of all of humanity, Israel and the Gentiles. If it wasn't for God's mercy, we all would deserve the same lot as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, let me, let me leave you with, with, with this thought. And I know this is a lot to, to swallow this morning. The point here that Paul is trying to emphasize, and we'll see this next week in verse 30 that transitions into chapter 10, is Israel's failure nationally in many ways was directly related to their rejection of the sovereignty of God. Paul's going to say in the next verses, the problem was Gentiles were getting saved by faith alone because they were just submitting to God's sovereign plan. But the Jews were stumbling because God wasn't working the way they wanted God to work. And it was their stubbornness in their human spirit that wanted them to, in a sense, have God make special exceptions for them. And because God wasn't working their way the way they wanted, it bothered them and they resisted God and stumbled at the promises of God. And this morning, I would leave you with this thought in relation to your life and how it plays out. Look, are you going to be stubborn in God's sight and find yourself, even when you don't understand, upset because God's not doing it your way? And stumble in your self-will, or will you by humble childlike faith accept God's sovereign? And God will do what he does, how he does, when he does, and the best thing we can do is humbly submit to that. Listen, God is in control. He's sovereign, and let him be God. Let him be God. He's really good at it. True? Amen. Amen.